Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, Sprouts at this time can be dismissed. Kindergarten and younger can go with Megan and Paul to the gym. I was in a fashion show last night. <laughs> I always like to start off with jokes. <laughs> Not really. But I was in a fashion show last night. Um, Kaziah, uh, we haven't seen much of Kaziah lately because she's been planning a fashion show on the weekends. And uh, it's good to have Kaziah back into our community post-fashion show. Kaziah is a fashion designer. And uh, so I was able to sport some of her gear last night. Um, ironically, I mean, this is a God thing. Uh, the theme of her show is Step Into the Light. The theme of my message, Step Into the Light. Didn't even plan it that way. Seriously. Wa- and, and the picture of walking down a runway, lights, dressed up, right? That's what we do. The unfortunate thing that's often what we do spiritually as well. We dress up. We look our best, we put on our makeup, we do our hair, we put on the right clothes. Spiritually speaking, we try to make the outer appearance look better. And we try to walk in our own light. This morning, the the theme of where we're going, the very point of this message, is that we do not walk in our light, that we walk in the light of Christ. Which exposes all of those things that we're trying to cover up those places in our hearts that we don't want exposed this morning, I pray by God's grace by the end of this service will be exposed in your life. That you will not be able to walk out of this rec center with that kind of darkness. Ephesians chapter 4, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, We're... Paul is taking a turn here. Um, We've been studying the doctrine of the gospel, the experience of the gospel, the cosmic nature of the church. And now Paul in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, he's turning into this like the pathways of the Christian life, the mountains that we cross, the, the rocky nature of the walk. What we're about to see is uh, morals. Which, by the way, this is something that churches some years ago actually talked about, morals. We don't like to talk about morals much anymore, do we? Well, it's, it's here. Um, and today is the day. But let me say this, as, as we go through this, in some ways, because we come out, because so many of us have such moralistic understandings of our faith, if we do these certain things, if we follow these commands, if we follow the law, then God will be happy with us. Because we're coming out of that, so many of us, we're, that's, our, that's been our thinking, and God has rescued us from that and reminded us of the gospel, that it's not our works which saves us, but it's according to his mercy. I mean, we can't forget the whole first half of Ephesians where we've been reminded of grace in the gospel. So as we 
begin to look now at what the Christian life is supposed to look like because we are supposed to look a certain way. As we're reminded of that, the thin ice that we're all walking on is that we slip back into moralism. And we begin to believe that if we do these certain things, then we'll be cool. God will be happy with us. That's not true. So can we just start with that preface? And now can we get into it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. We're going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse 14. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, we ask that you open up our eyes so we can see your truth here. Give us understanding. Lord, may we not be lost in in my ideas, in our own rebuttals. May we not be lost in our defensive posture that we so quickly often take. But may in humility we enter into this text. May May we see your truth and may it transform us. Allow these words to become living as your spirit operates in our hearts. Convict us this morning. Point us to Christ. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning has uh, continues this, this theme which has been threaded throughout all of the letter to the Ephesians. It's in that last verse we read. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This theme, the theme is this. You were once, fill in the blank, dead, and now you are alive. That's the theme through Hebrews, I mean through, through Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 1, we saw you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then a couple verses later, verse 5, but God, because he was ex- exceedingly rich in his mercy, just poured his riches upon you, because of his grace, he's made you alive. It's the theme that we're operating off, off of. And that's where, this, that's where this text ultimately is going this morning. That we were dead and that Christ shined upon us and that we have then been made alive. And as I said, the second half now of Ephesians is, is talking about this new standard for the new humanity. So the old humanity that we were once Uh, that we once lived in, the humanity which was dead, driven by the flesh, driven by our natural desires, we've put that off. And with a new identity, everybody say identity? identity. With a new identity comes a new standard. It just makes sense, right? We're not freed from the old to then just do whatever we, we please. We're freed from the old to do what we were never free to do before. And that is to live according to the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see this then. Let's, let's start just kind of working through the passage. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now the word Gentiles right there is referring uh, in general to fallen humanity. So as I say Gentiles through my message, as we see Gentiles here in, in this letter and in other uh, in other letters, we're referring to fallen humanity, or another way to put it is those who are outside of the covenant uh, that God has with his people. Those outside. So he says, don't walk as the, as, as, as the dead do. Don't walk as the Gentiles, as the fall, those who are fallen walk in the futility of their minds. Verse 18 They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, what does that say right there? The hardness of their heart. Now this is interesting. We are, this is Paul's preface for a whole list of commands. There are actually 37 commands that I counted in these verses that we just read. 37 commands that we're to be doing or not doing. His preface 
before he gives us this list, his preface is, they are alien, alienated from God, not because of their actions, not because they're not following these things, not because they're not doing the right things. They're alienated from God because of the hardness of their hearts, because they don't know grace. Do you see, what, see how he prefaces this? He's again prefacing it in the gospel. We are not saved by following. There is no list of laws that we can do that connects us with God. We are alienated from God. If you are here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're alienated from God, not because you don't do enough good, but it's because you don't get grace. You don't understand the work of Christ on your behalf on the cross. So they are alienated from God, the Gentiles, living in the futility of their minds because of the hardness of their hearts. Verse 19, they then have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's essentially saying this, assuming that you know Jesus. Like, if you don't know Jesus, forget the list of commands that I'm about to give you. But assuming you've already been transformed by the gospel, assuming that you know that the Father chose you, that the Son bled for you, that the Spirit filled you and sealed you, assuming that you know that you have been then stripped of your old self and you've been given new clothing, you've been given a new identity, assuming all of these things are true about you, then let's talk about the new standard. Assuming that you are in Christ, assuming that you have been taught in him, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. And let's just stop right there for a little bit. Do Christians live differently than the world? I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. Do Christians, people that fill churches, people that check the box, I'm a Christian, do Christians really, and let's talk about America, because this is where we live, all right? Do Christians in America live differently than their secular counterparts, than the Gentiles, than the world. Statistically, things don't look very good. Let's just be honest. Occasionally, I'll come across like Gallup polls and different things, Christians that are polled, people that check the box Christian. I wrote a couple down for you. 64% of, of people who check the box Christian, 64% say that morals are not absolute. Morals change based on who you are, whatever. Morals fluctuate, morals are not absolute. Um, the divorce rate among Christians, people that check the box is actually, this is, this is terrible, it's higher than those who say that they're not a Christian. If that is not terribly convicting, and 84% of those that that were divorced, were divorced after they were Christians. So these aren't like people that were divorced and then I came to The divorce rate is at least neck and neck, if not a little bit higher 
according to the polls. Uh, Christians that are polled, especially younger Christians, virtually there's, there's no difference in their sexual ethic. Um, over half of uh, people who, believe, who, who are Christians, who say that they're Christians, um, agree that it's morally acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. So sexual ethic is um, right alongside our secular counterparts. And then we hear stories that kind of confirm this, right? We hear stories and we see things. We hear stories of church members who are abandoning one another in lovelessness, separating themselves from people that are different, offering a cold environment as opposed to a warm embrace for every tribe, nation, language. Church members who are getting drunk on Saturday night, hooking up, and then in church singing a solo on Sunday mornings. Pastors falling into affairs with church members. Let's make it more personal. Is our local church, I mean, think about you, individually, are we, as a local church, are we different than the world? Are we different? Even more personal, just you as an individual, you know yourself the best. Are you different from the world? Do you live differently? Is there anything about your life that's different? Now, here is the crazy thing about that question and even the problem in the way that I just asked those questions. We immediately, when we think, am I different from the world? We immediately think of faces of individuals that we know that we're different from, that we are better than. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. So yes, I'm different than the world. I'm not as bad as that dude who's having sex every weekend, getting girls pregnant. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy who's a drunk. I'm not as that bad as that dude who's an You know what I'm saying? We, what we do, are you differently, dif- different from the world? My guess is nine times out of 10, we will answer that question with a resounding yes. I'm different than the world. Because we can point to people that, we're, that we are different from. That we, we're, we're following Jesus a little more so than they are. We, we abstain a little bit more so. We have a little bit more strength when it comes to these, these avenues of sin. So yeah, we're different. I'm, I'm doing better than my friends. See, the problem with this, and this is the way that so many of us just to get, get caught up in thinking about our spirituality and our spiritual consi- conditioning and our own evaluation of our souls. The problem is this. Our, we, we use as our standard for holiness, we use the world. We start with the world. And we say, okay, am I set apart from the world? Okay, yeah, so I'm holy. You know there's different levels of holiness? Holiness simply means set apart. There are different levels of being set apart. 
So you take this group of people and you raise yourself up a little bit. You follow a couple more commands. You do this and that. And uh, you are, okay, you're, you're holy to a degree. Technically speaking, you're set apart because, you see what I'm saying? So your standard then is the world. Whereas our standard is not the world for holiness. We saw it, we just read it in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's our standard. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, be holy as I am holy. Our standard for holiness is not the world. We are to be as set apart from the world as God is set apart from the world. This holy, righteous, perfect Creator, God. That's our standard. So when we begin to evaluate ourselves and we begin to look at our spiritual condition, instead of looking at faces of people that we know, we look into the face of God and we shudder and then we thank God for grace. In verse 3, what we see Paul arguing for as he's writing to the, this church in Ephesus, he says, but sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not, look at it, must not even be named among you. I mean, this is Paul writing to real people, okay, who have problems, there's sin in their lives, they're not perfect, they haven't achieved some kind of sanctification, They're people with issues. They have desires. They have sexual urges. They have cravings. They have addictions. You name it. They're people. They're humans just like us. And he's writing to them and he's saying, all of these things should not even be named among you. Like we should be able to sweep through and not see any of this is what he's saying. He's arguing then for this increasingly pure church. The church with a new standard, we have new clothing, we're a new humanity, and we are to be increasingly pure. And so what I want to do, what I'm going to try to do this morning is, um, as we work through this passage, I want to take these 37 commands and try to, I'm trying to boil them down into four like bite-sized chunks, all right? Because I don't know if we can remember 37 things, but we can remember four bites, right? And I think these summarize the whole. So four bite-sized chunks this morning as we are uh, looking at Paul arguing for an increasingly pure church. The first, here's the first bite. Are you ready? Open wide. Purity in speech. (laughs) He actually opened wide. Purity in speech. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. How do we engage with one another in doctrine and in Bible study? It's through speaking the truth. How do we engage with one another in confession? It's through speaking the truth with one another. Are you a truth teller this morning? Or are you a liar? 
as we are called to have purity in our speech, we are to be truth tellers. Verse 29, he again hits the way that we speak. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Check this out. But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give, give grace to those who hear. How convicting is this? Everything he's saying, everything that comes out of our mouths, all of these words. How many words do you say a day? I'm sure somebody's done some kind of, a lot is the answer. All of these words that come out of our mouths are to be words that build up and come across as grace or as a gift to those who are hearing. Do you have pure speech? Again, he hits it one more time in uh, chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness. Which, by the way, is not just talking about swearing. A prohibition on saying certain words that the culture deems cuss words is greatly and gravely missing the point. Guys, I have known people who have never said a cuss word in their life and 50% of what they say is filth. What he's referring here to is, is something much more than a prohibition on a couple words. Let's not fall into that trap. What he's saying is, is as you speak, as you share, as you talk, your speech, is it reflective of a cleaned heart? Or does your speech reveal filth in your life? Does it reveal dirt in your heart? Let there be, he says, no filthiness. We're in verse 4 of chapter 5. No foolish talk. Or in verse 6, he's, he calls that empty words. I think it's a similar way to describe it. Let there, like some of you just got to stop talking. <laughs> Let there be no foolish talk. You name it. Let there be no empty words among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor, this one's tough, should I even read it? Crude joking? That's what she said? Another sexually or racially motivated Crude, joking. Look guys, this is how the dead talk. That's what he's saying. This is how the Gentiles talk. The Gentiles make sex jokes. Not us. Let there be no crude joking among you. I mean, I, I, it's simple, right? Now, but then he doesn't just leave it with, with these uh, negative statements. He actually then gives us something to replace it with, because for some of you, no filthiness, um, no, no uh, foolish talk, no crude joking. For some of you, you don't know what else, you don't know what to say. Like that's that pretty much sums up all of your words. All right. So he's now giving you something else. All right. This is in contrast to that kind of speech. He says this. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
May everything that we, as Christians, as church members, may everything that we say and speak and all of our speech, may it reflect our thankful heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May there be thanksgiving in all of your speech. Building one another up, giving grace to folks. And when we want to speak filth, crude joking, whatever that might be, we replace that with thankfulness. Let's just give thanks. Let's turn off the comedian and let's just sit around the room and let's just give thanks. Second bite. That, that bite was big, wasn't it? <laughs> Second bite. Purity in relationships. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Mm. Confession. I was angry and I sinned. When was it? Friday? <laughs> I, had to, I had to apologize to my wife. And I even said this. I said, I, I, I was angry and I sinned. The way I lashed out at you. I was stressed, I was upset, and I sinned. It shouldn't even be named among us. Be angry, he says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Again in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's a word that we use today uh, to describe many of our relationships. You know what that word is? Drama. You guys ever use the word drama? Listen, what he's saying is this. The Gentiles' relationships are marked with drama. The relationships in the world, fallen humanity, those outside of the covenant, those outside of God's grace, those outside of that transformation of the gospel. Those relationships, those are marked with drama. Not so with us. In contrast, our relationships are to be marked with these words, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, as Christ forgave you. Kindness, being tender with one another. Relationships marked with forgiveness. You know, I love it when I experience this in the body of Christ. I experience this a lot as a pastor. Drama flares up, and you know what happens? Because of the, of the union that we have in the Spirit, relationships, the, the drama fizzles, and we're, we're now marked with kindness, with being tenderhearted, forgiveness. I mean, this is the way of it for us. We are not to walk with one another in drama, in contempt, 
in slander, in continual problems. How, how is your attitude when it comes to relationships? If a visitor were to walk in here today, would they, would they say you are a person who is marked by kindness, by being tenderhearted? How about those closest to you? Your spouse or your, your children? Your friends who know you the best? Would they say that you are someone who is marked by, by kindness, by being tenderhearted, by being forgiving? Or might they say that you are marked with slander, with contempt, with bitterness, with drama, with Gentiles, their relationships are marked by drama, our relationships are to be pure. Third bite, purity in our work ethic. Look at verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. Well, that's a pretty broad one. Right? Oh, and by the way, don't give the devil any opportunity. All right? let's, just, let's just say that. Give no opportunity to the devil, verse 28, and let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might get rich. Amen? No! That's not what it says. Let the thief stop stealing. Let him start to work for the purpose of, let him, let me find it again. Do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief stop stealing and let he be, let, may he be marked as a person of generosity, of sharing. This is all throughout the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, which by the way, in the New Testament, these believers' lives were filled with, with pers persecution. I mean, like, they had to rely on each other. And so if you had a freeloader, that was, like, that was like a real practical problem. Not to mention the spiritual dilemma with freeloading, which we'll talk about. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Stay away from any brother who is walking in idleness and in not accord with the tradition that you received from us. If anyone is not willing to work, not willing to work, meaning he can find a job, and he's not willing to work, let him not eat. What's the problem with stealing? What's the problem with freeloading? What's the problem with being a thief? We have been created to work for material things, for sustenance to get what we need for our bodies, to be able to share, to be able to help those who are in need. I mean, this, this goes back before the fall. Like for those of you who hate to work, you're like, man, I wish Adam and Eve never sent, like they were working before the fall, <laughs> all right? 
Adam was given the role, the, the job of working the garden. For what purpose? There was fruit growing for his sustenance. I mean, this is God's created order that we use our hands to create material things that we need for our bodies, that we need to live. It's a very good thing to do. Now, the problem with stealing is this. You're taking those material things that you do not work for, you're perverting the created order, and you're taking the labor of someone else. You're taking the fruit from someone else's tree. It goes even deeper than that. Often, the problem is this. It grows, the mater- our desire for material things grow to the point where we can't work enough to get all of the apples that we want. You see what I'm saying? We can't do enough work to get all the material things that we want, that we want to consume. And so then we begin to steal, placing these material things as idols in our lives. And we steal, and in a technology age, that might even be ideas. Might, might be songs. Who knows? Are you a thief? In contrast, though, we work so that we may share, so that we may meet the needs of those who truly have needs, the orphans, the widows, the hurting, the destitute, the dying. Which then goes to our work ethic. As we work, what is our motivation to work? If, if, if our motivation to work is simply for material things, this phrase that we often use, I work for the weekends, which typically means I, the only reason I'm doing what I can do is so I consume all of my fruit on the weekend and buy a lot of beer. Right? Work for the weekends. If, if the only reason we're working is to consume, we still, even though we're working hard, we still aren't, we're, we're still perverting this thing. We're still making it about the material things, about the consumption. So a pure work ethic that he's calling for then is, is one that is marked with generosity. Enough to provide for you and your family and enough to share with others. That is the thief who has been transformed by the gospel and has been given a new identity. And guys, the church has seen this over and over and over again. Live this out. Finally, fourth, fourth bite. This is maybe in our culture today the biggest. Um, so purity in our speech, purity in relationships, purity in our work ethic, and finally purity in sexuality. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be, be named among you as is proper for the saints. Sexual, sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Women, if you want to spiral down a vortex of sexual sin, begin reading erotic literature. With sort of a comeback of erotic literature, 
into the mainstream bookstores through, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey, which we all know about. Let me, one Christian woman said this, and I, I want to be very crystal clear about this. This is huge. I have Christian friends who are spiraling into sexual sin because of erotic literature. Listen to this. One Christian woman said this about just erotic literature in general. Curiosity, she says, has led to the downfall. Curiosity, like what is this all about? Hmm. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to kind of be the sexual police here. I'm going to see what this is all about. That way I can write about it or speak about it or tell a friend not to read it. All right? That's what we do. Out of curiosity, she says. Out of curiosity. Curiosity, curiosity, quote unquote, has led to the downfall of multitudes who have been trapped in the destructive downward vortex of sexual sin. Curiosity. But sexual immorality is not even to be named among you. Stimulation outside of your husband is not to be named among you. Men. Men. Are you listening? Yeah, we're talking about sex. One author, Christian author said that it, um, if, when you're talking to dudes about their spiritual life, he said, if you ask a guy how he's doing spiritually, he will often tell you how he's doing sexually. Think about that. You ask a guy how he's doing spiritually, his response will also, uh, often be formed based on how he's doing sexually. So if he's doing well, good. If he's not doing well, he's falling, he's struggling, he's stumbling. Not doing well. For those of us who um, were adolescents at the beginning of the internet boom, and we had constant, unfiltered, unchecked access to the internet, our generation, guys, is not looking good. I mean, even forget about the fact that we could of ongoing pornographic, unrepentant uh, sin in your life. But we're now seeing how this even affects the way that we look at women, how we objectify our own spouses. It should not even be named among us. He says. How do you, guys, how do you treat, or how, not treat, how do you respond to women who you find sexually attractive? How do you respond? Are you loving her as the Bible calls you to, as a sister? Look, I love every woman in this room in the same way that I love my sister. 
and I will never touch my sister. Are we loving like that, fellas? Inside the church and outside the church where, no, where, where you don't have as much accountability? Sexual immorality, he says, must not even be named among you. And this is the, the Greek word here is porneia, which is actually just a very broad, I mean, it, it covers everything. Everything that comes, uh, comes with sexual, Im- or every kind of sexual immorality. This includes, I just wrote a couple things down. Hooking up, all right? Hooking up, even if the alcohol was involved. All right, we gotta stop blaming the alcohol. Yeah, I hooked up. I was a little drunk. All right, let's skip down. This is next week, but let's skip down. Uh, be not drunk with wine. Come on. Are you kidding me? Hooking up. Uh, any kind of sex outside of the marriage covenant. Objectifying the opposite sex, man or woman. Sex inside, listen to this, sex inside of the marriage covenant, which continues to objectify your spouse and make him or her into a sex object. Homosexuality, pornography, lust, pedophilia, bestiality, and the list could go on and on and on. For the Ephesian church right here, the church in Ephesus, what Paul is saying, I want to just be crystal clear. He's saying this kind of stuff should not even be named among you. It should not be there. He's arguing for an increasingly pure church in every way. It should not even be named among you. Now, as we go through this and as we've looked through these commands, 37 is what I counted. I wonder this morning, which one of these you have to ignore in order to go on living the way that you've been living? If you're bold enough, you might underline it right now. What do you have to ignore out of your, in order to continue your, uh, your lifestyle? The, the problem at the root of the problem, if that makes sense, is this. We don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We really don't. I mean, as moralistic kinds of people, what we think is that God generally wants us to be good and he's arbitrarily kind of come up with this list of rules that we're supposed to follow. And so sin then is just doing something bad. That's not it. I mean, that is not, that's the poor definition of sin. And when we think like that, when we think sin is just doing something that God just doesn't want us to do, well, we really are not understanding the sinfulness of sin. I want to point something out to you. Look in, uh, Paul, the, the translator put this in parentheses. Uh, I think it's powerful. It's, it goes back to chapter uh, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, verse 5. Uh, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, look at this word, an idolater. Now I believe Paul is in some ways summing up all of what he's been saying here. This is idolatry, my friends. It's idolatry. I mean, at the root of sin is placing something else in the seat that only God 
should be sitting. Let me, let me break through each one of our bites so I can give you an example of what this looks like. With our speech, we're called to purity in speech. Words are primarily given to us so that we may know and commune with God. Think about this. Just stop for a moment. Why do we have words? Why, why do we, why, I mean, words kind of make us a little different from the animals. Why did God bless us with the ability to speak, with the ability to understand language? It's so that pre-fall, we may commune with him. We may have communion, that we may talk with him. We may share our ideas, our thoughts, our feelings, our, our, our thankfulness with him. And then as we carry that out post-fall, God then chose to use words to continue to reveal himself to humanity. He used words to reveal the law. He used words then to point to Christ and then he used the word becoming flesh to save us. So that now we can use words to commune with God. I mean, that is the purpose of words. That's why we speak, is so that we may have communion with God. So th this is what happens with words. When we take this gift that's been given to us for worship, primarily, and we pervert it, and we, uh, we turn it into something that's dirty, we turn it into something that's crude, we turn it into just something that's even empty, we're just talking too much. We're speaking foolish things. What we're doing is we're taking this great gift that God's given us and we're making it our own. That's idolatry. Going on uh, to relationships. If all people are indeed created in the image of God and we treat people with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor less than human, essentially. We are denying the image of God in that person. And we are actually placing ourselves above them. This is idolatry. Work. We're created to work for material things. Material things without work is, is, is perverting the, the created intention and it's because material things, as we've already said, become our idol. They become our God. This is idolatry. Our purity and sexuality, sex, is a gift. Everybody say, sex is a gift. <laughs> to know the glory and the beauty and the int intimacy and the union of God. To get a glimpse, listen to this, to get a glimpse into what heaven might be like as we are united with one another and we are fully united with God. It's a gift that we have been given to know God, to know his beauty, to know his glory, to know his intimacy, and to know his union. And so when we, when we take sexual desire and sexual fulfillment and we separate it from its purpose, and now sexual fulfillment in and of itself becomes our goal, that's idolatry. 
We've taken yet another gift that was given to us so we may have communion and, 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 and turn our worship and glory to God and we've made it into something to serve us, to serve our flesh. It's idolatry. The truth of the sinfulness of sin is that all sin is rooted in idol worship. And what he's saying here is that idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, let, I want to make this very clear. This is where I said we're treading on thin ice because I don't want to break through into moralism, all right? What he's, what he's saying, I want to break this down. What he's saying is this. If the whole theme of Ephesians, if, if God has chose you, the, spirit, the Son bled for you, the Spirit filled you, and the Spirit sealed you. You've been given now a new identity. What he's saying is, is now you walk in a new standard. You walk now in the light, not in the darkness. But now what he's doing here is he's turning this all around. He's reversing it. And he's saying, so if you're not walking in the light, if you are continuing to walk in darkness, in ongoing, unrepentant, habitual, indwelling sin, then it's very possible that you do not have a new identity. That the Spirit has not filled you and has not sealed you. That you do not understand the blood of Christ and you do not understand the Father's will for your life. So, essentially, and you might write this down, your behavior then, your behavior doesn't create your identity. All right? That's moralism. Your behavior doesn't create your identity. On the contrary, your identity creates your behavior, determines your behavior. A few points of application that I, that I feel need to be said. Um, number one, Eternal security is not an excuse for sin. Eternal security is not an excuse for sin. There are many Christians, quote unquote, and I do put those, that in quotes. There are many people who believe very strongly in the doctrine of eternal security and they're on their way to hell. Eternal security is not an excuse for sin. They do not have a new identity. They do not have a new heart. For those of you who are newer to the faith or if you're not a Christian here, eternal security is uh, two words that we use to explain the doctrine that those who are sealed by the Spirit will always be sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit will never pull out of someone that it has filled. Do you understand this? So if we've been, if we've died with Christ, we, we died with him and then we were raised to new life, it's impossible to die again because we're filled with the life of Jesus Christ and the seal and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, a better word or a better phrase that we can use to communicate that is perseverance of the saints. And I'll tell you why. 
Eternal security gives us the idea, just the wording of it itself, it gives us the idea that we are sort of secure, that we're locked in because of a prayer that we said when we were eight. And now we can live however we want to live because we're locked in. We're good to go. Are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I prayed that prayer when I was eight. I was baptized a year later. Right? Though nothing in your life is reflective of a new life. It's kind of problematic, isn't it? Perseverance of the saints, on the other hand, which more clearly communicates this doctrine. What it's saying is this. All who are truly filled with the Spirit of God will persevere in their faith till the end. They will make it. All who are truly filled with the, the Spirit of God, they will persevere in moving toward holiness. They will continue to bear fruit in their life. That's not to say that they are perfect. We do not reach, uh, achieve sanctification this side of eternity. We don't achieve perfection this side of eternity, in these fallen, broken, fleshly, sin-oriented bodies. But those who are truly filled with the Spirit are moving toward sanctification. We're moving toward holiness. We're bearing more and more fruit. That is the doctrine of personal perseverance of the saints. And it's a beautiful doctrine because what it says is that left to ourselves, we're nothing. Left to ourselves, like, man, if, if God doesn't keep me, I won't keep myself. Because I know how my mind wanders. I know how my flesh wanders. I know how my heart wanders. And man, like prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. If God doesn't keep me wrapped in, then I am lost. It's a beautiful doctrine, but we can't use it as an excuse for sin. It, it actually calls out holiness in us. That's what it's about. Uh, second application is this, battling sin, struggling with sin. All right, so for those of you who are sitting here and you're like, oh my goodness, I have so, much, so many sins in my life that I'm struggling with. What is, what is this telling me? What's this saying to me? Listen, battling sin does not mean that God has not saved you. We have to know that. Battling and struggling with sin is not in and of itself an indicator that you are not saved. And I'll prove it to you. Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How can you grieve the Spirit of God if the Spirit of God is not within you? Do you see the difference between the lost and the found? You once were dead and you had no Spirit of God within you that was being grieved when you sinned. You had no, no, no new nature. And so it just, everything felt natural. But now that you've been clothed in righteousness, you've been given the gift of the Spirit, now it's unnatural for you to continue in sin. Yet we still struggle. John, John Piper, I, think, I love the way he said this. Let me just read his quote. He says, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections, failures, addictions, shortcomings then I see little war. See here, this is the difference between someone filled with the Spirit and someone who is not. 
The person who is not filled with the Spirit is going to be very comfortable in, in, in their flesh. The person who is filled with the Spirit senses the groaning of God within them and they fight. They war. Like, are you, and, and as pastors, we, we get that, we hear a lot of complaining, like, man, like, I just, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm into this thing, or, yeah, I got drunk, right? I, yeah, I just keep going back to it, you know? We hear complaining about it, but we don't see a lot of fighting. I mean, where is the war? Where is the battle? In Ephesians chapter 6, where we're going to get in about three weeks, we're going to see the battle. We're going to see the armor for the battle, because this is a fight that we are in. This is not to come natural and easy. It's a battle, it's a war, it's a fight. So Christians here today who are, who are struggling with sin, fight war against your flesh. Now here's Paul's conclusion and we're gonna make it ours. Um, <clears throat> look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed... When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now that's, that's kind of normal. If the lights were off in here and it was dark and we flipped on the lights, what happens? Things become visible. And so then as we walk as children of the light, as we walk in this new spirit, in this newness of life, what it does is it flips on the lights and we expose the sin in others. The light shines on the darkness and whatever it shines on is made visible. Now that's good. It's, it's good because sin needs to be exposed. Sin should be exposed. And as we walk as children in the light, sin is exposed. But look, look how he continues this. For anything that becomes visible is light. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now this is what I believe Paul is saying here. As we live and walk as transformed people by the gospel in the light, as we walk in the light, we sh not only do we expose sin, but something beautiful and miraculous happens. The power that the light wields is the power to convert souls. And as sin then is exposed, anything that it shines on, it becomes visible, and then anything that is visible is now what? I mean, it makes sense, the picture he's using. It's light. The only way that that anyone, as sins are exposed, can keep it then from becoming uh, light is through running and hiding and remaining in the darkness. See, we are called not only to a couple laws or commands. We're not just called to live some kind of straight and narrow life. We are called to radically be on, the, on mission the mission that Christ sent us to go into all the world and preach the gospel 
seeing people become disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son. And as we live as people of the light, sin is exposed. And as people's sin is exposed, they have no choice now but to deal with it or to run. Isn't that beautiful? And so then he's, he says, he quotes, then this is probably a, uh, a, an Easter hymn, most theologians believe. Awake, he says, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is our call today, to wake up. Just wake up. And let the light of Christ shine on you. Our response is to get in the light of Jesus. To look to the cross, to understand that though we were sinners, our sin was nailed to Christ with Christ on the cross. And that it is paid now in full. And because of his blood which is poured for us, we can boldly approach the throne. And we can boldly stand before God even though we, our flesh remains struggling. We can boldly stand before the throne of God, not because we have light, but because we are in the light of Christ. And as the light of Christ shines on us, we are opened up and we see the junk that remains and we move and turn away from it. We repent and we follow Jesus Christ with all that we have. I pray this morning that the junk, the darkness that's inside of you that you don't want to talk about, that you don't want to uncover, I pray that in your heart that it has been uncovered. And I pray that the light of Christ is shining on it and it has been then dissolved and eradicated. You see, you should not, you should, we, we are not to be people of guilt. I don't want anybody to walk out, if you're any Christian, to walk out if you're feeling guilt. We have the righteousness, the light of Christ, which is shining on us. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And then we are transformed. Because of our new identity, we have a new standard. Our purity in speech then, it, our speech is transformed by the gospel because we have no other reason now to speak other than just simply giving thanks for the good things that God has done. It's the most natural thing for us to do. Why talk about crude things? Why talk about filth? Let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just give thanks right now. Our relationships are transformed because of the gospel. Because now we can actually forgive as Christ forgave us. We couldn't do that before. But now we have a whole new concept of love. We have a whole new concept of forgiveness. And the gospel transforms the way that we relate to people. We now are, are transformed in our work ethic, again, by the gospel. Because we're no longer just working for material things because we found everything that we need. We found all the riches that our heart longs for. And now we can just simply work to share, to meet needs, to provide. Our, our sexuality then is also transformed by the gospel as sexual gratification in and of itself no longer becomes your God. And our guilt is transformed by the gospel. As we who are indeed filled and sealed by the Spirit fall into sin, as we, as we look to the cross and as we remember, it is not my works 
which have saved me. God is not happy with me just simply because I do the right things or don't do the right things. It's according to his grace. And then we are freed from the guilt to stand back up and fight war. My prayer is that we as the Garden Church become an increasingly pure church as God has made you aware this morning of any ongoing indwelling sin in your life, my prayer for you is that you wake up, that you allow the light of Christ to shine on you, that you arise from your sleep. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, preserving these words for us today. And God is powerful and effective as these words were in the Ephesian community 2,000 years ago. They are as living and as powerful today because your spirit has not changed. Your spirit continues to fill lives. Your spirit continues to seal us. And we are part of a gospel that we do not deserve to be part of. God, we rest in the fact that it is not our works that save us. Even as Christians, we look to the cross for our, for our hope, not to our good deeds. But God, as we put this into perspective and as we then now realize that we have been given this new identity, that we've been raised from the dead, that we are united as a cosmic church with a massive significance, I pray that we will now walk in this new standard. God, if there's anyone here who is struggling deep in sin, Lord, before they leave, put them into relationships with an accountability partner, some, someone who can help them, someone who can work with them. May we confess our sins to, each, to one another in truth. Continue, God, to expose the darkness in us and lead us to become a church that walks in the light. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.